0: Welcome to the ESG Matters Podcast. I am Ahmad Gomis and I'm your host. Today, we have guest Justin Bean, an impact-focused leader with global expertise, working with organizations around the world, from Fortune 500s to governments to Silicon Valley startups. Bean brings a fresh and hopeful perspective to a world in crisis. In his new book, What Could Go Right? Designing Our Ideal Future to Emerge from Continual Crisises into a Thriving World, Bean argues that despite all the doom and gloom we hear about every day, our world is actually in much better shape now than ever before in human history. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Great. So I think the first step may be a really obvious question. What was the reason that you wrote this book? What what was the aha moment that you felt that the world needed to understand that we're at a better place than we were previously before or what people think of?
1: yeah I think it was probably a collection of moments, and you know myself like like everyone else I've seen the news there's so much doom and gloom out there around climate change and all of the disasters that are gaining in frequency and strength and you know when I wanted to look at the future, what I saw around me were stories of Apocalypse and dystopia, and all of these terrible worlds that none of us really want to live in. But at the same time, living in Silicon Valley and working with a lot of startups and innovators that are out there creating the future, I saw actually there's a lot of hope, and there's so much innovation and so many new solutions out there for these challenges, and seeing business and innovation as a way to solve problems, and especially ones that people are really passionate about, I I started changing my mind a little bit. And and I looked at the, you know, the history of humanity across lots of different metrics and seeing the improvements that we've made along the way to improve our health and well-being, to improve abundance and economic stability, and even how far we've come on respecting and regenerating the environment around us. And all of the technology information that we've gained through a lot of research. And you know, there's actually a lot of hope and there's a lot of great things going on and a big opportunity for us to get involved in building this better future. So when thinking about it and searching for these alternative futures that would be ideal, I found it lacking. And so we don't really get this world that we want just by fighting the one that we don't. We get the world that we want by designing it envisioning it and building it. And when I saw that there's a lack of stories around what that ideal future might look like that we can then start building towards, I thought this is a great time to go out and talk to people who are working in these different spaces, who are experts in different areas like education or public safety or different technologies and see what they think and what that better future might look like and how these technological and sociological trends that are emerging are actually enabling us um, more than any other time in human history to be empowered to go out and create that better future, and so it was. A, it was a great journey. Got to speak with a lot of really interesting people who are making a lot of impact, and and in doing that, I think we were able to envision not only what a better world might look like, but figure out some tools and frameworks along the way that can help anyone out there. To Do that themselves as well and and help to envision that better future that we could be a part of and that we have an opportunity to go out and build so i'm I'm actually really excited about it. I know we've got some some big crises and some big hurdles to get over, but looking at the history of our species we 've overcome so much, especially when we get galvanized and excited about something, and there's so many tools and resources available to us today to help us go out and, and build that future
0: so I think it's really interesting when you talk about how we view the world. And oftentimes, we do see this through social media, through a lot of different lenses, as this kind of feeling like the end of times. And I think people who work in ESG or sustainability in particular, they have to do a lot of what you're talking about as far as, one, understanding what's happening and then leveraging different opportunities to build the world that they want to see in the future. Build it better build it and leverage all the great opportunities that are afforded to your point as a species that even 50 to 75 years ago weren't available. So I'm curious from your standpoint, when you've talked to a lot of these leaders, when you've talked to people, what are some of those tools and frameworks that you've seen that people are starting to utilize to build this better world?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think the first part is just understanding why that mindset shift is important and it's not about Pollyanna optimism. It's not about just having positive thinking and, and anything like that. It's really about being more effective at doing what you do. So if you're in this fight or flight mode and you're, you know, scared about the future and worried about it, it actually decreases your your mental effectiveness at solving a problem. So you get in that fight or flight mode and you can be really effective at fighting or flighting, or even, you know, appeasing or, or pausing. But when you need to be creative and you need to create new solutions, when you're looking at that ideal vision, it gets you excited and it gets you energized and it actually activates more of your brain. So estimates vary, but we're looking at about a 30% reduction in brain capability and focus and effectiveness, when you're in that fight or flight mode. So switching over to that engaged mode actually makes you more effective. So that's a good place to start. And then when we're we're looking at frameworks, I think one that's really helpful to think through the lens of is the Three Horizons framework. And this is a, a really great one that looks at the decline of the status quo trends that are no longer fit for purpose. So let's take fossil fuels as an example. So they've afforded us an immense amount of abundance by discovering oil, discovering fossil fuels and how to use them, and they've helped us get to where we are. One could even argue that the world we live in is is really an oil party. (laughs) But we know that it's causing all of these climate problems. It's toxic. It's spewing poisonous fumes at, uh, you know, child breathing level throughout our cities. And so we need a change. It's no longer fit for the purpose that we need it. So imagine that as a declining curve over time. There may be some things we need to keep and, you know, pharmaceuticals and plastics and all of that, especially if we can recycle them, will still remain a use for, for fossil fuels uh, or oil or um, hydrocarbons. And then if you, you say there's another curve that crosses that in the opposite direction that goes from the bottom and then upward to the right, And that's the emergence of that superior future. And in this case, that's a cleaner, sustainable, more abundant, and more equitable future. And so that crosses somewhere in the middle. But it's not just about those two curves. There's a third curve, which we call the second horizon, that's in the middle. And that one actually peaks where the other two cross. And that is all of these new innovations and new tests and hypotheses that we're playing out and testing as we try to reach that, that better future. And not all of them will win. Not all of them will become the solutions. But as those get implemented, we actually see a rise in the amount of conflict between that first horizon, fossil fuels, and that third horizon, a sustainable future, because the status quo is starting to be replaced by something new. And so as that gains steam, Part of the pun for the renewables in the future or that sustainable future, that actually increases the conflict between the status quo and the and the new world. And so I think that's a lot of what we're seeing today, especially in the business world and with some of the news stories and disinformation around EVs and climate change and renewables, is an increase in that conflict between those two worlds and between those two trends. And so I think thinking in terms of that helps us understand that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but this is actually a sign of change and a sign that things are substantially moving in the direction that we want. And that doesn't mean that we can just coast from here. There's a lot of work to do, but I think just recognizing that there is a lot of conflict and change and in the crises that we see, and that's actually, as it advances, going to galvanize more people and energize more of that change and more of the momentum behind it so that we can get there faster. So that's one, I think, really helpful framework. Another one is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which we use in the book, not just from a personal level. We all learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in psychology 101. And it's all about meeting the basic needs of a human being before they're able to advance to the, to the higher levels. And when you're worried about finding food or shelter, you're probably not worried about your, you know, your community health or your mental and emotional health, let alone your self-esteem and everything that's sort of at the top of that pyramid. So using that framework, we then apply it to society and say what does a society look like when all people's physiological needs are met when we advance up that and create safety needs community needs esteem needs and then all the way up to self actualization so what happens when we get to a you know post scarcity society where we've got really effective education people can be entrepreneurial there's abundant resources available but then what do we do with our time i, I think there's kind of a belief that once we get to that post-scarcity, we'll just sit around and be lazy and, you know, get out of shape and everybody will be bored. And that's a possibility. But anyone who has, you know, been to a children's playground ever knows that all people start out very creative and energized and, and excited. And we sort of, through this experience of our mechanized life, start losing that inspiration and losing that creativity. And so I think the the possibility here is that as we get to that point and try to reach self-actualization as a society, it actually unleashes everyone's full potential and creativity. And they have the freedom to go out and do what they really want to do in their lives. So that's another one. And there are some around forming teams. There's one I really like called Five Dynamics. And that basically speaks to not people's skills, but what they get energized by. And there's there's four actual quadrants in this. One is explore. So there's people who just love new ideas and love exploring the boundaries. And then there's excite people who love getting people excited and energized. And then there's examine people who really like to take things apart, figure out how they work, figure out the problems, what we're trying to do. And then there's execute, people who just love checking off lists and getting things done. And we all have parts of that, all of those parts within us, but we we tend to get energized by different aspects of it. And this is actually what causes a lot of conflicts in teams is if you've got someone who's very heavily explore and wants to brainstorm new ideas, knows that many of them won't work, but this is the process to get to more ideas so that we can then whittle down. Someone in the room who's an examiner will always be pointing out, hey, here are some reasons why that idea won't work, or let's break that down into pieces and figure out which parts fit and which parts don't. And that actually stifles the creative process for the explorer. So if we don't think through that framework, we might think, oh, I don't like that person. They make me feel bad, or they're always shooting me down, or that person's just totally naive, and they're coming up with all these stupid ideas. But if we recognize that everyone has a part to play in this process, we can respect each other's parts, and we can let them take it on in the process that it's needed. So someone who's an examine might allow someone who's an explorer to explore more and get more ideas on the table and wait their turn for when it comes around. They say, okay, now let's break this down. Let's figure out what's actually going to work and what's not. So those are just a few, but we get into things like design thinking. Also, there's a great framework called Omnithrive, which is about how a society like an organism Functions at its its full thriving, and that's by each part within that organism functioning at its maximum so for example, your liver is not in competition with your lungs for survival, and <laughs> they're not trying to take all the resources from the body that they possibly can they're at a, a point of balance and omnithrive, so if any one of your organs were to be you know shut down or not get any of your body's resources your whole body would be at risk and your life could end because your pancreas goes out or a kidney goes out or you know, your liver goes out. And I think the social organism is a lot like that. And so if we think through that framework of society as more of an organism and less of a machine, we understand that everyone has a role to play and everyone has value. And if we can find a way to help everyone thrive at their personal maximum or the community maximum, that actually means that that overall society is thriving at its maximum. And so I think there's kind of a deadweight loss, as we you know speak in economic terms, of having communities that aren't integrated into the system, that don't have the resources or access to knowledge that they they potentially could have, and it drags down the possibility and potential of the, the overall society. So very long-winded answer, but there are lots of different frameworks and, and ways we'd like to try to think about this in the book.
0: To unpack that last one, when you think about the society as a body, are there parts of the society that are more like a gallbladder rather than the intestines in the sense that there's some parts of our society. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing now is that we're trying to figure out what parts of a modern day society are essential for us to have versus what parts of it need to are sort of vestige organs that aren't necessarily useful as one would have hoped. Because a lot of times I think when we're thinking about society and we're thinking about communities, there's a need to say that what's worked in the past is going to work in the present, but we really need to re examine how those things have worked. Is it causing us pain? Is there a reaction there that we haven't really unpacked because we're so used to that pain? Or are we do we need to excise some of this out because maybe there's other parts of our body that can, uh, the body of the community that can take on some of that responsibility or be absorbed. So I, I'm just curious from your standpoint, when we think about building this better world, part of it is, I would think, would be not just thinking about the things that have that where we want to go, but also what are we taking with us into this world? And then also with that, not necessarily a change in focus, but when we think about, again, the body, the culture, the community, we think about how important it is for technology businesses to be part of this. So I'm curious as to where you view businesses role in this, or is it existing businesses that can play a larger part or a smaller part in this? So I'm just curious to understand those two concepts a little bit more in depth.
1: Yeah, I'm off. that's that's such an important point. I'm really glad you bring it up. And the way that I would start thinking about it or framing it would be, you know, looking at education, for example. So the way that our education system was designed and built was for the Industrial Revolution, when we started needing people to shift from agriculture and all of these kind of smaller independent farms and communities. Similar to China, similar to the US, and needed them to come to work in factories as we started creating the industrial machine. And so people needed different skill sets to start working in the industrial machine. And it included a lot of really repetitive, very boring labor, to be honest, and dangerous labor. And so people needed to, in the prevailing understanding at the time, needed to understand how to be obedient and regimented and be able to kind of regurgitate the knowledge that was given to them so that they could use it in the factory and they could work in this sort of mechanized society and mechanized economy that was being built. And that's where I think technology often is in this interesting interrelationship with society. So as you mentioned, technology comes in, and in that case changed us from an agrarian society into an industrial society. And then as we look at today and we look ahead, we have a lot less need for people to be robotic, right? We've got robots for that. We need people to be more entrepreneurial and more creative and more really liberated to find real satisfaction in their lives in a world that's very different. And so when we, Fast forward a bit, and we see even more automation and more not only robotics but artificial intelligence and software taking over a lot of the sort of redundant repetitive activity that is so much a part of our economy today. There's something that we need to leave behind, and that's you know thinking of people as robots and thinking of people as machines and inputs and instead allowing us to move into a world where every human being is more of a creative individual. Everyone's more empowered as as an entrepreneur or collaborative member on a team that's building something new and different. And in addition, it's not geographically limited. And so when we think about all of the people who you know, could have been an Einstein in life or could have been an Elon Musk or a Maya Angelou or anyone who has contributed something really amazing to our society. There's so much human potential out there that goes unrecognized and unrealized because people are either, you know, economically impoverished or didn't have access to education or communication and collaboration tools, or just didn't have the, you know, the cultural mindset or framework because of family of history or anything like that that they were born into. And with technology today, especially with the explosion of collaborative tools and remote work and our adoption of that and trust of that, I think it opens up avenues for so many people that otherwise wouldn't have been able to engage in the system to engage for the first time. And that is opening up the world to so much value that comes from people. And that starts to translate into business as well, because this is the way that humans for most of our history and most of our economic activity carry out the creation of value. I think it's 82%, but don't quote me on that, of human activity is private enterprise and business. And so as we shift, and as we move out of this more, you know, centralized hierarchical society, where we've got the sort of working class, and then we've got a small elite that is kind of in control of the information and resources and the way that we do things and shift to a, a more egalitarian or equitable society where it's more meritocratic and and people create and are rewarded for value that they create. No matter where they 're from, and no matter who they are, um, because they 've got the technology and the connectivity to the world, I think we 're going to see a, a mass empowerment of people that 's going to be pretty amazing and, and we can 't even imagine what that what that means and so it 's not only tools it 's not only technology but it 's also money and there 's a democratization of money that 's going on right now from things like crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding so on one side, as an entrepreneur you can not just find an institutional VC, venture capitalist, or an institutional investor, you can go to the crowd and say, here's a really exciting idea, and I think I know how to make it happen. And then you can find funding. And again, people who have in the past not been supported as much by institutional and traditional investors can now find more money available to them to uh, to go out and create these ideas. And so that means there's more resources flowing to this innovation and, and creation of these, these new solutions and tools and it also means that we can all become investors as well and we can share in that upside traditionally it's private equity and venture capital which are often funded by you know big banks and large institutions that get these large returns when these startups go you know become the Facebooks or the googles of the world and having these resources available to everyone to create their ideas and have access to those resources but also providing access to everyone to share in the wealth and share in the, the growth there is going to create a huge amount of abundance. And a lot of that is going to come in the form of climate tech solutions and new solutions that create abundance for people because the solutions are being created by people who are in different places and face different challenges than before. So I think we'll see fewer, you know, sock delivery apps, <laughs> or things that you know are challenges faced by well-off people in some dense cities in the US and more solutions that make more sense for more people across the world.
0: Well it's interesting you talk about more people across the world. We know in the future the world will the world population will be fueled by the growth, population growth in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa to be particular. And a lot of what you're talking about makes sense, but I'm just curious because oftentimes those locations face very unique challenges that we in the US and Western Europe aren't necessarily accustomed to, but in order to build this better world, in order to build this more egalitarian society where people are giving opportunities to be the best of themselves and provide the best to society because they were able to do that. I'm curious, have you, in in your research for this book and in the book, do you talk about what that will look like taking into account a lot of these geopolitical changes in the population demographic changes in just for humans in the next 50 to 100 years.
1: Yeah, you're right. There's some really some fascinating demographic shifts going on and economic shifts that that come from that. I think the recent news around China's shrinking population is a really fascinating aspect of that. And Europe and Japan and North America are all sort of facing the same thing. And we see that in you any country that starts developing beyond a certain level of subsistence into a more abundant economy, the birth rate actually goes down. And when women have more access to education and entrepreneurial resources, the same thing happens. And so- you know how do we deal with this as an economy? We're going to have to rethink infinite growth as our economic model in a world where we start shrinking in population similar to China. Now, the U.S. has much more open and, in my mind, progressive immigration. And so we welcome immigrants from around the world. And that's actually going to be really helpful to the U.S. in terms of continuing to grow and continuing to have lots of young minds available to create solutions. And Africa is in you know, a very different, but a similar situation where the their population is very young. They're starting to develop more rapidly with the assistance of China. But China is not only bringing ports and infrastructure, they're also bringing culture. And so these are in countries where the US refused to work with in the past, but we're starting to open up to that and and engage more with Africa, luckily. And, And as that happens, there's a potential for the population of Africa to adopt more authoritarian culture, similar to Chinese uh, political structures. And I don't think that's a good thing for for Africa and for African nations. And so entrepreneurship, it's already booming there in many places. There's, you know, Silicon Safari or, or whatever we call it in, in Kenya, Silicon Savannah. That's what I was thinking of. So this this culture of entrepreneurship is also, you know, has been in Africa for a long time, similar in India, where many, many people are entrepreneurs, but it's in more kind of local businesses and, and small shops and things like that. But as they're gaining access to the global economy, it's going to fuel a lot of that growth and integration with the global economy and integration with the global culture of that independence. And so one of the areas of research that I looked at for the book was, you know, what comes first? Is it development and then democracy? Or does democracy lead to development? And what I found, at least from the research that I looked at and dove into, was that primarily democracy comes from development. And as people become more empowered and wealthier, they begin to demand more from their governments. And the places where this doesn't play out as much are in oil nations. So where one resource or a couple of resources go to a small number of people that grow the economy, and it's not a distributed economy, then authoritarianism often holds strong and you don't get as much demand for democracy, often because the general population is dependent on those massive resources from the government or from those few large companies that are the only game in town. But if these economies are growing in a democratized and uh, distributed fashion, they start demanding more say in their governance and in the policies that that shape their economy. And we're starting to see that already in China. We've seen a lot more protests and a lot more pressure on the government, more of the people's say into account when they're making these policies and making uh, political decisions. And so I think a similar thing will happen in Africa, where we'll have more of a hopefully distributed growth economy and that that will lead to people saying you know enough with corruption enough with authoritarian control and we want a say in our own destiny and i believe that's the path that africa will take in the in the longer term but there will be challenges like you mentioned And like I mentioned around the the Chinese model, and we'll just have to rethink some of our economic assumptions, Uh, like in China, where the population is shrinking, they they need to kind of rethink how they're going to go about things, uh, whether that's immigration, but that's only going to last, you know, a few decades, as other nations become wealthy and start leveling off in population. How do we start thinking about economics in a world of shrinking populations or of you know massive more growth in, in abundance? And so there's a lot of questions we need to ask, and there's a lot of smart minds at the table. And I think we're more empowered again than ever to to answer those challenges and uh, and come up with better solutions.
0: Well, thank you so much, Justin, for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. And just to wrap up the last question, where can people find your
1: book? Great. Yeah, Emma, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a fun conversation. I'm sure we could talk for two more hours about all this stuff. Mm. Um, And I appreciate you having me on. But yeah, the book is called What Could Go Right? Designing Our Ideal Future to Emerge from Continual Crises to a Thriving World. And you can find that on Amazon by myself, Justin Bean, or you can go to justincbean.com to find out more about me and the book and, and get in touch. So thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for being a guest. Take care.